morning. Welcome to the Old School podcast about the American contemporary American education system, the traits, the quirks, the problems, solutions, insofar as we know the solutions. Good morning, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. I intentionally left that pause there because you, you weren't sure if I was here, but uh, we're, we can't see each other anymore. Uh, the, the image has disappeared, which you know, from our book, we would say that's a good thing. Um, we're doing this totally by audio. And uh, I, I miss seeing your your face on the Zoom here, Miller, because I can read your thoughts a little bit better. I don't know <laughs> what kind of a mood you're in now. Um, that the facial expressions uh, give it away. So this I'm a little bit at a disadvantage. Well, it'll be interesting to note. I mean, it's, you know, the, the kind of the key component of uh, personal communication is to be able to read uh, expressions, to read body language, to do so in such a way as to moderate what you do, what you say, how you say, things of that nature. And so it could be, this might be the most awkward, the most difficult to sit through Podcast episode <laughs> compared to earlier ones when we could see each other. I'm not liking it. We've we've lost all rapport. Who are you? I don't. I don't even know. <laughs> uh, it's like a, a, a phone conversation into our microphone. Um, I don't know if I like it. But, uh, It'll be interesting to see whether anyone else likes it. This uh, could be I, the this could be the beginning of the end of the old school podcast. I think it is. Uh, it's a transition, <laughs> transition point. We did it because we didn't like the sound quality of the Zoom, and we're blaming whoever owns Zoom. Uh, probably one company who owns everything also owns Zoom. Um, and so this is our protest. We're just not using them. Uh, we, we could go in many different directions. Who knows what this might end up at? Right now, we're at a kind of a basic uh, kind of company that does these sorts of things. Who knows where we end up next? Uh, but Zoom may have played itself out. You're right. Okay. We'll have to wait and see how it goes. But yeah, it was a good run. They uh, they had a hell so of a. So how does my career. how does my voice sound? Um, what do you mean? <laughs> well, I have I have a new thing for my microphone. It's a, uh, for lack of a better word, it kind of oh <laughs> r- reminds me of a condom. You just kind of strap it onto the microphone, and then you have a condom around your microphone. Well, not an actual condom. That would be a very weird sound. But no, this is supposed to be some sort of foam sock that's supposed to give my dusky deltones more um more something i don't know well you've, you've never sounded better and um, i sometimes you know, have irony in my voice but normally you have a little tinniness to your sound which i attribute to the microphone not your own voice but this is this is the best ever and, and i'm being serious uh, even though i'm having fun with it well, here's the problem. I think I may have a tinniness in my voice as a rule. So, you do. because yeah, this is the problem, because when I moved from Maryland to the South, I had Marylanders, I think sometimes have kind of a nasally type of voice or kind of accent. Yeah. And when I moved down to the South, there was a concerted effort simply because people couldn't understand some of the things that were saying. But, you know, I, there was a there was a uh, there was a concerted effort to try to eliminate the accent. But I've not I don't, I don't believe I've been able to get rid of the. I don't know what you would call it. It's kind of a not necessarily a high pitch quality, 
but well, uh, it, it, it's it's kind of like a grating noise. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I, I would love to hear what the Maryland accent really, if you just pull out the stop, sounds like. If you could say a few things, and then I could tell you if, if you're faking it or if you actually were. And because you know, I don't trust your story, by the way, <laughs> Maryland. Well, you consider that I have been away from Maryland since '93. Oh I'm not sure. I mean, absent of going up there and kind of immersing myself back in it, I'm not sure I could reproduce a Maryland accent. Now, that said, there are things that I say that my kids tease me about. When I say kids, talking students, that other people tease me about uh, that I say um, that are remnants of that accent. Uh, okay. What's, for a, what's example, an example? Yeah, for example, please. For, well, for example, you know, the days of the week are typically, I pronounce them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know, it's got that I sound at the end. It's a, and what is a D? You say Monday. Yeah, you always do that. It always annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a cultural trait, sir. And I don't, really? think it's, I don't think it's very nice of you to sit there and disparage or otherwise, uh, uh, you know, suggest any kind of annoyance with my cultural heritage. But, right. um, but yeah, so is that, and, you know, or I tell you what used to get people really confused is when they would ask me where I was from. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the way to say it, uh, where I'm from is Baltimore. Oh, and excuse me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it sounds warbly. It sounds mumbly, you know, it's Baltimore and, uh, Maybe Baltimore, you know, where there's a kind of a hint that there's, there's no be a T in there somewhere. Okay, so, no L, no T. But yeah, so that's part of the issue. You know, people are like, "Where? Where are you from?" You know, I said I'm from, and then I had to start saying I'm from Baltimore, and then <laughs> ah, Baltimore is that in Massachusetts? I said, no, it's not in Massachusetts. <laughs> wow. Okay, this this explains a lot. Um, because I think your your list is rather long with little things, remnants, I would say. You have a lot of remnants happening. There are remnants, I think, and in, in, in I guess I wouldn't want to give that up, I think. I think uh, it's, it's, it's that one little sign, that one little symbol of where I come from. I love my hometown. I don't think I could live there today. I think I've grown too genteel for the rough and ready streets of Baltimore. Perhaps. <laughs> no. I don't know. I, I but, uh, cause I, I lived in some pretty rough neighborhood. I, not like wire rough. I'm, I'm just, you know, just you're running in the mill rough, you know? Um, so I'm not sure I could live there today. You've gotten soft here, Miller. After well, all, here's the years. thing: I wouldn't have to live there today. You know why? Because a bunch of a bunch of uh, uh, hipsters have come in and 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 kind of taken over, and now it's uh, it's dreadful. I don't know what's worse. I mean, for sure, certainly from an aesthetics point of view, it's better now. But I'm not sure from a cultural point of view, it's better. So they and, took those row houses that had actual people. Uh, and they they turned they upgraded them somehow and, and tripled the price and so people came in with a cleaned up neighborhood. I hate the idea too. Yeah, well, because when you clean up a neighborhood, what you're doing that's code for driving out all the poor folks, right? And all and all the common working folks that can't afford to live there anymore because none of the hipsters want to live next to people of actual uh, <laughs> interest or character or what have you, you know. <laughs> 
you so know, you were around around a lot of people with a lot of character. I was, and now you have you you have people without character trying to <laughs> affect character. You know, you got all these 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 hipsters in these kind of manicured and gentrified <laughs> neighborhoods with their signs in various languages say we welcome you here, even though no one who speaks those languages are allowed to be in there because they, they can't afford to live there, you know, or whatever the case may be. And so yeah, I just you know, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Wow. So you Baltimore. say hipsters, you don't mean like hippies, but you mean that like the people who live in Portland, a great city, by the way. <sighs> You may be the only person who thinks that, and the, <laughs> and just like just just typical of everything else, you don't actually have to deal with the reality of Portland, and so you're just like, oh yeah, it's a great city. Because what you're thinking of is you're thinking of Portland of your teen years and of your early twenties. Yeah, you're right there. The, the whole thing is a <laughs> it's a lie. <laughs> it doesn't exist. You can never go home. So I don't know. I miss my I miss my hometown. I miss some of the things there, but going there doesn't fix it because the things that I miss, a lot of a lot of them are just not there any longer. Some of the shops, some of the delis, you know, some of the you know the people, of course, you know that the character. Unfortunately, it's a little bit like what happened to Times Square. You know, it, it you know they took out all the strip joints and peep shows and put in Disney and M and M shops, and then. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's cleaner, it's safer. I'm just not sure it's better. I mean, I guess it's better on some level, you know, because who who needs all that other stuff there? But at the same time, it's just not as interesting. Well, I just I just kept my mouth shut during. That. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like a bunch of landmines happening at once, and inside abort, abort, abort. Don't don't say it. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. It's just you know. Gentrification has the means, it has the effect of kind of sanitizing things. And to me, I think when you sanitize, I I think it just gets a lot less interesting. Not necessarily preferable to have the old way, because I think we can all look back and say, man, that sucked. You know, the old, you know, whatever existed, because I grew up in Baltimore when it was changing from a, a steel industrial factory town to trying to find its way as a service uh, you know, trying to find its way towards the service industries that were emerging. And there's plenty of stuff that I remember growing up as a kid thinking, God, this is horrible. You know, what I remember perhaps with more fondness is just, just the folks, the people that I hung out with and the parents and the grandparents and all that other stuff. So. Well, there's, uh, let me try if I can to convert this conversation to schools. Mm. Um, there, there is an argument about public schools, and that this is a bit of a melting pot where you, you get to be around students who are different, who look different than you, and who have you know, different backgrounds and so forth. Um, does that happen, um, or, or has have we gentrified the schools also? I think there's certainly an attempt to try to do something with the schools. The problem is the people who who wish to do the most with schools know the littlest about schools and certainly know the littlest about the subjects being taught within the schools. So let's just go ahead and dive in. You were saying I was flirting with landmines. Let's just go ahead and start digging up the landmines. Okay. So you're saying the the schools are gentrified or or not, but the landmines are something else, something quite different that, that might relate to more to 
teaching and the public and, and some of the things that there's some chatter happening right now. There is a lot of chatter happening. And, and people are familiar with certain school districts in North Texas because they've been getting a lot of attention lately, especially uh, negatively. Um, and, you know, those school districts that are around us that are uh, kind of occupying the public square of attention, you know, there is, you know, and I'm looking at this through the eyes of a history teacher. So this started, this, this whole kind of, because everyone's looking for a new cultural war to wage, this all started with, it seems like, maybe I'm wrong, this Probably. is the first time I noticed, is when the 1619 project came out, New York Times published a kind of new look at how we look at U.S. history how we evaluate U.S. history, how we evaluate different events in U.S. history. And most of it was through the paradigm of racism. Now, you can say you know, that the, well, the, prob well, the problem that happened with the 1619 Project is that there was a lot of folks. First of all, the person who wrote it was not an historian. That does not necessarily disqualify someone from speaking about history. But what it does do is that it it provides ammunition for somebody who has an issue with it. And there were a lot of well-known, esteemed, respected historians who had an issue with how the 1619 Project was researched. There was a lot of issues with how uh, some of the conclusions that were drawn from it. And... I think more than anything else, one of the issues was the simplicity of suggesting that everything can be explained through a single paradigm. And while that paradigm does exist, to suggest that's the only thing that exists from an historical point of view, from an historian point of view, is problematic. And so as certain school districts began to take on and wanting to incorporate some of the lessons from 1619 and some of the things that were produced afterwards, that's where some historians and some history teachers ran afoul of the quote-unquote experts or administration figures or activists or what have you. So there's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation was the reaction. And the reaction took place on a bunch of multiple levels. And what you see around North Texas and some of the school districts that have been mentioned uh, in the, the, national, uh, the national media has to do with not just trying to reject the notion and some of the ideas and some of the uh, principles that are behind that first salvo from the left. Now from the right, you have not just a rejection of it, but anything that even sniffs of it. And it doesn't matter whether it actually is a part of it. It doesn't matter whether it is good or bad or what have you. That does not seem to enter into it. People are evaluating things based upon a idea of something, not the reality of something. And so you have one of the things that this has manifested itself into is a question about books in the classroom. Now, the issue that started the thing near, near here um, with one of the school districts was some sort of um, book that was found in the library that was, I think it was like a graphic novel and it showed 
underage kids having sex or something along those lines. It also showed a, an adult having sex with an underage person. And, and of course, people lost their mind, as they should. I think we can all agree that not everything needs to be in a school library. And that certainly falls under the category of doesn't belong in a school library. I think if you have a graphic novel that is showing and highlighting and, and illustrating something that in anywhere else in the civilized world would be against the law, that's probably a good sign that maybe that doesn't belong in your school library. Probably not, but it, you know the uh, reaction might be to just get that one book out, but not make a claim that look what they're teaching our kids now. Well, yes. And, and so this is, and we've, unfortunately, I can't remember if I've mentioned this story or not. My sense of it is I have, um, but to, to go ahead and just, you know, here's where people jump to conclusions. Yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting point. The, the is that, well, when I first started at my current school, I was, asked to teach regular government, regular government as opposed to advanced placement government. And I was coming from a school where I had, where I was teaching advanced placement government. And so when I got to this new school and I got the assignment to teach regular government, I said, okay, I'll just, I'll do it similar to what I was doing with advanced placement because it's interesting stuff. There's interesting things in the AP curriculum and I didn't see it in the quote-unquote regular curriculum. And so one of the things that I had the kids do was to evaluate court cases where they had to present it. They had to talk about the issue that led to it. They had to talk about what was the constitutional question, what was the decision of the court, what was the ramifications of that decision. Okay. I remember this you know, personally, but you haven't mentioned it on the podcast. I like this story. Well, one of the court cases that the students were asked, and I, I was picking students to do each case. And so there was one case, I think it's Johnson versus Texas, maybe Texas versus Johnson. It's an anti-sodomy law that was being debated before the Supreme Court. And, and of course, this was designed to go after certain, you know, certain uh, members of the population. And it was considered a way to kind of keep them down. And so I had a young man and I said, I told him what the case was. I said, do you have a problem presenting this? Because I think we can all agree. No one necessarily wants to talk about this in front of a high school classroom. Right. Um, and he said, no, I said, I'm okay. I said, okay. So off he goes. Two days later, one day, two days later, his mom calls the front office. She is beside herself. Now, notice I did not say the mother called me. This is the other problem, but I digress. Okay. Is this uh, Lawrence versus Texas? Because I'm Lawrence, Lawrence yes, sir. that's right. Lawrence versus Texas. I'm, it's not like I knew it, but I no. you, you weren't sure, so I thought I'd clear that up. Uh, Johnson versus Texas was flag burning, I think. Lawrence that's versus right. Texas. Yes. Yeah. So um, I get called into the principal's office, and the vice principal apparently parenting the words of the parent said, we have a parent complaint that we have a parent complaint that you're teaching sodomy. Oh, come on. No, no. And I looked at her and I said, well, can we go ahead and just for the sake of this conversation, start with the basic principle that I wasn't teaching sodomy. And then we can go from there about how to deal with this mother's complaint. 
and they wouldn't get away from the sodomy thing. I and even I even explained it to them. And you know what the vice principal said and when we concluded this ridiculous discussion. The teach the prince the vice principal said, "Well, you know, this is, these are regular government kids. These are not AP kids. You can't do the same thing." And I'm sitting there going, "Why is that exactly?" I would love to hear the pedagogical <laughs> rationale that you have that suggests that just because a kid is not in a class that says AP, that they're incapable, unwilling to do something that is taught in an AP class. The principal or vice principal is, vice principal, yes. that, is that there, there's more subtlety of understanding for the high academic achievers, apparently, and they have a nuanced understanding of argumentation that your regular in quotation mark students wouldn't well first of all i would not i would not project that level of understanding and nuanced thinking to the <laughs> vice principal who was making the argument well it's, it's a terrible claim and, and there's a lot probably behind it yes you know, none of it's good so this so the overreaction to the notion that i'm teaching sodomy in a classroom is the same reaction that a bunch of people made to win office and there was a there were several uh, uh, opening spots on the school board on that district uh, that where this is all happening. And the people who won, I think all of them, were these folks who ran under the idea that the, that the school's libraries from elementary to high school was just rife with pornography and other stuff and un-American stuff and what have you. And what that has led to is that has led to this pressure that says that you can't teach this and you can't teach that and you can't mention that and you can't mention this. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, for example, it may have to do with stories or histories that are surrounding, um, uh, you know, gays and lesbians, the, the, uh, uh, the LGBTQ uh, community. It may have to do with African-Americans. It may have to do with a bunch of other folks. And the other side to the equation is that it's also putting a damper on or it's 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 leading parents to have kids be on the lookout for some lingo that's uttered or said or presented in a classroom. Now, I have always known that people I've always assumed that there was a chance that someone was rolling tape in my classroom, especially once iPhones came into the mix. Yeah, you have to. It's just uh I don't know if teachers know that, you know, they, they should just make that assumption and they'll be better off. Certainly. I think they would be now, you know, this, so, so this is the kind of the explosion of paranoia that exists and it has the effect of saying, we don't trust teachers to do their job. And so therefore we're going to place these, you know, these odious Byzantine, uh, a level of restrictions and regulations and rules and what have you um, to make sure that they do what we want them to do. And I have teachers. I know teachers in my school, um, even though you could say that that's happening in another school district, I have, I have teachers in my school that still worry. They worry that they might say something. They worry that someone might bring something up. Well, so-and-so said such and such. And this teacher said that. And what it had the effect of between the original problematic ideas that came from the left and now the reaction that comes from the right, 
you there's so many ways that you can mess up to somebody's mind that I think a lot of people are just worried and they're nervous and they're scared and they don't know what to do. Okay. So as, as, as teachers, you, you start to think that you can't say anything. So what, what happens is you tone down your language and the content so much that it becomes, you know, innocuous, boring. Um, but it, it could be one of the, add that to the list of, you know, why teachers may consider leaving the profession. You know, and this is, relatively new that i'm i wonder i'm I'm not in the classroom now but but my reaction would be to be very very careful about bringing up anything you know outside of the the subject matter um and and of course teaching history you're you're in a bit of a corner there and here and 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 it it goes beyond just the instructional Mm -hmm. paradigm right because there's one school district nearby us that says that teachers are not allowed to call students anything other than what their God-given, you know, political name is. And part of this is done to undermine, you know, kiddos who say that, you know, her name is Susie, but she likes John, you know, or whatever the case may be, or the vice versa. So it's a preemptive strike. It's a preemptive strike, you know, that I know one teacher in that same school district who had as her get to know you um, piece of paper that the kids filled out, you know, how do you prefer to be called? And she was told to X that out. Now I wouldn't necessarily have written that out, but just in the course of conversation, you know, if Robert says he wants to be called Bob, well, I'm going to call him Bob. Or if Susie wants to be called John, I mean, listen, as long as it's not something ridiculous, I prefer to be called Pookie. (laughs) <laughs> you know, as long as not something like that, you know, I don't care. I mean, it's not it's not my decision to make. If well, the kid wants to be called that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I have a solution to that, and this is something I did in German class all the, those years. Is on the first day, I had p- people select German names, which is <laughs> 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 I don't know what 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 types of rules I would have been breaking today doing that, but, you know, names like Klaus and Helmut and, <laughs> and it's just, it became so absurd because I forgot their English names. When 20 years later, Klaus. How's it going? <laughs> yeah. I mean, my name when I was a, in, in high school was Ludwig. Uh, <laughs> probably if my old German teacher is still with us, <laughs> he would say, Guten Morgen, Ludwig. You guys didn't. Who knows? But I, I don't think that's a solution. And you're you're getting at a kind of a serious cultural problem because the, the teacher doesn't know what to do at that point. They don't know what to do, and they don't know how to proceed. And, you know, you have this angle. You have the angle about the discussion of politics and complicated and controversial contemporary or, you know, know, contemporary events happening. And there's an attempt to try to squash all of that. Now, I will say, as I've mentioned in this podcast before, I do not talk about my political ideas in the classroom. Yeah. My political ideas and opinions are not for my students. I don't know what your views are. (laughs) (laughs) However, I have had plenty of colleagues 
that thought that they were perfectly in their right to say what they thought. And so I think you could definitely say, you know, you shouldn't be able to tell people what they can and cannot say in the classroom. However, unfortunately, there have been plenty of teachers in the past. We had one fired recently because of something that they said in the classroom that was based on their personal opinion. And so once you get into all this stuff, it's one, you can see where the reaction is coming from, but then it's going so far and it's so comical and it has the effect of making a lot of people walk on eggshells. And you're right. A lot of people are sitting there thinking to themselves, what the hell am I doing? I should go get a different job that pays more and I get less hassle and I'll probably be happier to boot. Well, the general idea of academia is that you have freedoms, you know, to express ideas and uh, let the, your students try them out and argue against you. And, and, and it, it really just takes, it undermines that kind of a methodology. I mean, we had a, we stole an idea from Neil Postman actually, where um, in it, I think it was the end of education, that, that book where he suggested that you do a lecture um, full of bias and errors. And, and the task of the students listening is to call you out on that. Right. Um, you know, today, you know, that exercise would be taken, taken literal, literally, and you would be in front of that vice principal wondering <laughs> why you're ranting about things that are full of bias and aren't true. Do you remember when I did that? I tried it. <laughs> tell me, tell me again, because I, I know it's it's from those glory days when we were driving to school every day. But yeah, because I, I was in a class and I decided to create a <laughs> I, lesson. I tricked I, you into doing it. And you actually yeah. did it. <laughs> no, but I wanted to see what would happen. I wanted to see how well the students could pick up on the fabrications I was making or exaggerations or however you wish to characterize it. What were you talking and, about? What was your topic? I can't, I can't remember. It was some, it had to do with us history. Okay. And I told the students at the beginning that we were about to have a lesson that the lesson <laughs> would be filled with factual errors, biases, problems. And it was their responsibility <laughs> to take note of what they thought was problematic. And then we would discuss it in the end. And then I had a parent, <laughs> God bless it. You know, you and I have had experience with parents. Uh, the, 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 the creme de la creme was the woman who yelled at the top of her lungs at me for like 20 minutes and ended uh, her rant with the decoration, answer me. You know, and so, you know, we've had some, we've had some strange interaction with parents, but I had a parent that called again, not me. <laughs> Why would you do that? All the <laughs> you know, don't they, talk to the teacher at all. <laughs> <laughs> but they call the administration administration saying that you have a teacher that's purposely lying to my students about U.S. history. Okay, you know, guilty <laughs> as charged. Yes, right? okay, fine. Yes, okay, but do, do you you didn't get the rest of it apparently? You know, because the kid was incapable of expressing what actually was happening, and so it's just. I don't know. It's just, you know, right now the news is filled with these crazy conservatives who are trying to ban books, you know, but it's happening also on the left, although you don't hear as much about that. You know, the Seattle school district that took out the kill a mockingbird because it was considered racist 
which apparently the activists who led the charge failed to understand that was the point of the book, that there were issues, there were un, un, injustices that were happening because of the question of race. Well, they so didn't read the have, book. You have no, all these things. Yeah, Say again? They're, they're banning books uh, which they have not read, first yes. of all. They're banning books that they haven't read, and they probably read the Cliff Notes version. If they did that, I wouldn't. Right. I wouldn't uh, assume that level of commitment to their ideas to have even read the Cliff Notes version. But you have a bunch of people who just have this rather archaic, puritanical ideas, and unfortunately, it's coming from the right and the left. And if you sit there, listener, and think this is both sides of them, both sidesism or whatever the hell they're calling it, you're part of the problem, you know, because, you know, they, it's happening on both sides. You can't sit there on any kind of political pedestal and think that you're somehow above the fray. Because both sides on both extremes are acting like idiots and they're acting like intellectual nincompoops. And it is anti-intellectual. <laughs> it is anti-thought. It is anti-educational. It is anti-knowledge. It is so many things that we as teachers come into the profession wanting to extol. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression. It's just, you know, there's a lot here and a lot of people are ticked off. You know, you know, you get in the media about how, oh, my God, they're banning books. The, that shows that no one's interested in having a conversation. Conversation is not whether a school library says that this book or that book should not be in the library. Because I think a reasonable person can say that certain books should not be allowed in a school library. The question is, is what is the process by which you weed those out? How do you handle that? How do you deal with that? And how far do you take it? This is what we're dealing with now, whether it is from the left up in Seattle or from the right down here in North Texas. Either way, you got a bunch of people that are not serving students well. They're not serving education well. And they sure as hell aren't serving the pursuit of knowledge well. well that's a, a depressing idea, you know, because the nobody's arguing for the First Amendment. They're arguing for their side of the First Amendment for their exactly. their policy. And yeah, I, I think a, a teacher in a way is is caught in the middle. Um but I, you know, I do want to go back a step because you told me the, um, the result of your thought experiment in, in your classroom. Um, and often we, we get theoretical ideas of, of how to teach something and then we try it with real students and it's great or it, it just didn't work at all. I, what I want to know is how did the students handle that? Because you know, they... I'd be safe to say that they haven't had that methodology uh, <laughs> up until that, that time as juniors or sophomores in high school. Uh, there's no chance. <laughs> Some <laughs> elementary school teacher, anybody would, would be crazy enough to, to, to try that, to put it in their lesson plan um, and execute it. I mean, you went through with it. Um, so what was it like in the classroom? How did the students respond? Well, I think it's, um, I think it's one of those things where, and I'm going from memory, and I hope it serves me well. You're getting older. Well, I am getting older, yes. So, but my my recollection 
was that there was a great deal of uncertainty. I thought the students looked and probably felt uncomfortable, uncertain. And to an extent, there's not a problem with that. You know, and I don't want to go on another rant here, but the notion of a safe space is ludicrous in a room of the pursuit of knowledge. But they looked uncomfortable and they looked... They, did, they weren't in their element. This is not what they had spent their entire public education career expecting. And I think for some of them, it was quite difficult. For others, I think they were able to roll with it a little bit better. But, you know, the thing about the safe space, nobody, and I mean nobody in my classroom, has the right to put down somebody else or to make someone feel bad for who or what they are or what they think or whatever the case may be. Outside of that, I think the purpose of teachers is to make people uncomfortable. Now, thankfully, no one's asked me to take Hemlock yet, but I mean, it, it makes you wonder, you know, what is going to be the conclusion of a bunch of teachers that say stand up for the idea that questions need to be posed. And if you're going to be a thinking adult, you need to think about these controversial ideas and do them in such a way that you're not riddled with emotions but using logic and reasoning and rationalism to try to understand what's happening around you. Well, it's almost like a, a teacher needs to give a preamble, maybe every day, maybe every lesson, maybe every, every whenever there's a transitional activity that um, they, they need to, to understand what the activity is, what, you know, the context, because, you know, that conversation that they're having with their parent is a, uh, you know, a high school kid reporting something that happened in the class, you know, non-contextual, you know, they, so that parent is, you know, maybe <laughs> didn't get much of the story. That's my, my, my guess. They're not right. going to argue with Neil Postman's methodology, <laughs> but, but they, you know, so the, the, the student to some extent is to blame for telling an incomplete tale uh, to them. Just like the, I mean, we, we, we sometimes forget about the culprits, but a, a student should not, under any circumstances, record a, a teacher in a classroom ever. You right. know, and, and so, so that doesn't. Often, we're shocked to see gambling here, but we're, <laughs> we're, not, but we're not identifying that that student who made the recording. You know, that's that's compromising. It's breaking all kinds of moral laws and and, and other other things uh, as well. But I but I wonder just how careful teachers are going to have to be. Because I, I would never imagine that your methodology that you tried that one day has been tried by anyone since. Well, no. Well, it, <laughs> it, it, it would, I would assume that people are reading and seeking to implement the ideas of Neil Postman. But right. I think, yeah. Um, I, I make it it's made teachers, I mean, that's sort of the trend we're discussing. They've gotten so, so careful that we've you know, potentially taken some of the joy out of a, a, the classroom experience. The joy and the interest and the challenge of the classroom experience has definitely been dulled over the last several years. It's been gentrified. <laughs> There's our connection, finally. There's our I connection. That's what, that's what happened. We gentrified the classroom. We gentrified the classroom, and, it, and, and we are poor for it. Um, again, you know, it's not a direct analogy because Lord knows with, you know, with Baltimore in the 70s and New York City or Pittsburgh in the 70s, there's a lot wrong with those those places. 
And, but the problem is, is like with most things in the United States, we, we take one idea and we overdo it and we apply it to everything. And it has almost the lack of any kind of moral empathy for the people to whom the changes will most affect. And it's the same thing with regards to education. I mean, these people that, that seek to try to sanitize the classroom uh, based on their own ideas, you know, whether it's from the left or the right, um, they're doing the exact same thing. They are the new Puritans. They might as well walk around with those frocks on that the Puritans wore that we think they wore because we saw it in a Thanksgiving play on second grade one time. But, um, but I think, but, you know, part of the, part of the issue is that's what we're dealing with. And so if you're a free thinking, if you're an intelligent individual, this is tough times to live in. But even if you're just a person who believes in the notion that people should have the right to say what they want, no matter how stupid it is or how wrong it is, you know, the, the whole idea behind the marketplace of ideas is that once people have a good understanding of what a bad idea looks like, they're better able to determine what a good idea looks like. But if you're sitting there trying to erase the bad ideas, I think you end up having a problem. And so I don't know. It's just, there's a lot of stuff going on. I worry about my colleagues. I worry about, uh, I don't worry about myself so much. Like I said, I'm halfway at the door anyway, but you know, in part of that, there's a little bit of freedom in it. Um, it's like my friend who said he, 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 he did a retire rehire and I asked him how long he's going to work. He said, well, until they piss me off. And so, <laughs> so there is a little bit of freedom from my point of view, but my friends are not necessarily in that position and they're going to be stuck trying to ask some pretty life-changing type of questions. Do I still want to do this? Is this still worth it? And shit, I, I, it just, it just seems to me to be, a potentially horrific in its implications, what we have here until, unless someone, unless cooler heads prevail, unless more reasonable heads prevail, I don't know what happens next. Well, it seems like this pattern is accelerating and, and it hasn't, you know, you know, reached its, its, uh, I guess the point, the, the high point or low point, whatever you want to call it yet. <laughs> by you know by any means um i i was just listening to what you were saying there i can't help but listen that's what i do but <laughs> this new medium we're using i mean you you're you're kind of on a roll here miller i mean you're talking about sanitize the classroom marketplace of ideas and there's something about this i mean what what do you think but in in some ways we're we're more focused uh, certainly you are i think i still like to see you i think you know, uh, but I mean, yes, I think it does allow you to kind of occupy, occupy your space a little better. And I don't know. I don't know if I'm on a roll so much as I'm on a rant, but. Uh, no, 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 no. I think you are on a roll, but there's something about, I mean, we talk about the, the medium, um, but listening. I mean, you've, you've said the same thing about baseball, you know, listening to baseball rather than watching it, you have a different experience, but. Yes. For this type of a, a a podcast, I mean, I'm more focused uh, listening better. I think is 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 what it is. Um, 
but we 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 may try it again. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it was a flop like you you said it would be at the beginning. <laughs> I don't think I said anything of the sort. <laughs> like you. Um, well, you know they they say that like when they when a person uh, through some unfortunate incident becomes blind, then the other uh, senses are heightened. There. And so maybe absent of our visual stimuli, we become. <laughs> better thinkers as we listen to one another and try to respond the best way we can. Well, yeah. And it's a higher conversation. I mean, for example, I'm wearing an Oregon t-shirt today because the ducks are playing and you would have, you know, tried to make fun and to diminish the compliments <laughs> of the program. And I would have probably made comments about your beard growing into slowly or something. You know, the silliness <laughs> is gone now, you know, that we're, this is, we're taking the high road. Um, we're, we're changed by the medium. suddenly. we're becoming better. I think so. We're um, becoming the best versions of ourselves. Yes, um, absolutely. In every way <laughs> we, we are. Um, All right. Well, enough of this. We have college football yes. to watch. We can't be bothered with this sort of silliness any longer. And so <laughs> unless you have anything to add, we shall say adieu, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. Adieu. Auf Wiederhören, Herr Miller.
Thank you.